When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Latinos have been asked to play defense over and over and over again, including coming out and voting against Trump. What we haven't had in a very long time is something to vote for. And what negativity does is it suppresses the vote. Latinos have not rejected conservatives or Republican candidates because of what they believe, because of the, of, of the principles. They've rejected them because there's been an absence of this conversation about the virtues of the free market, about self-reliance, about hard work, about what makes America strong. Hello, welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Leon Krause. I'm a Slate columnist and a journalist from uh, Univision based in Los Angeles, California. I'm thrilled to be hosting the show once more, especially at a moment such as this. The midterms are one week away, and if we choose to believe forecast models, the Democratic Party is poised to regain control of the House and come close to doing so in the Senate as well. Whatever the outcome, though, after next week's election, the United States will find itself polarized even further. As the, the election has drawn nearer, President Trump has relied on fanning the flames of discord and division that suited him so well in 2016. His nativism, for example, has quite frankly reached a boiling point. Trump has turned a caravan of immigrants where thousands of terrified people flee an impossible situation in their countries of origin into a so-called quote-unquote invasion and national emergency for the United States. It is not. He has once again attacked the media as well and turned the campaign into a stunning display of fear-mongering and division, everything of course as a, as a strategy to try and rally his supporters for next week's crucial election. In classic Trumpian fashion, he has done so without considering the consequences of his words. Of course, hate speech has consequences. Moral ambiguity has consequences. Sooner or later, it always does. Only those who choose to ignore history can think that it doesn't. And, and we saw it. We all saw it this past week with the mail bomb scare, apparently perpetrated, as we know, by a man who has been listening spellbound to the president's rhetoric, and we saw it, tragically, we saw it during the weekend in Pittsburgh with another mass shooting, this one not coincidentally happening inside a synagogue in a much beloved and respected Jewish community. Although Trump did condemn both violent acts, the question remains, and it's important, does the President of the United States truly care, or is he so caught up in his binary thinking, his win-at-all-costs frame of mind to realize the, the consequences of what he says, the kind of division he has sown in this country. In the end, of course, the, the, the answer to this question matters greatly, but what matters most is the opinion of the American electorate. What do American voters think of the state of the nation? Next week's election will begin to answer that question and many others, and one crucial variable is the topic of today's Trumpcast, the Latino vote. We have heard it a million times, but it's worth repeating. Hispanics are the sleeping giant of American politics. They are. 
The Hispanic voting bloc is already 12% of the American electorate, and it will continue to grow in the coming years. One out of every five Americans, 20%, almost 20% of the electorate, one out of every five Americans' voters will be Hispanic by 2036. Next week, the Latino vote could be the deciding factor in the Southwest, in Florida, and in an increasing number of places across the country. And yet, Hispanics vote less than any other minority in the United States. Even though there are 30 million eligible Hispanic voters, less than half of them turn out to vote. This indifference to me, as both a Hispanic journalist and an immigrant, is striking and mysterious. We'll be right back with our guest, Roberto Suro, to talk about this topic after the tweets. Let's do the tweets. Sadly, it looks like Mexico's police and military are unable to stop the caravan heading to the southern border of the United States. Criminals and unknown Middle Easterners are mixed in. I have alerted Border Patrol and military that this is a national emergency. Bus change laws. Full efforts are being made to stop the onslaught of illegal aliens from crossing our southern border. People have to apply for asylum in Mexico first. And if they fail to do that, the U.S. will turn them away. The courts are asking the U.S. to do things that are not doable. All levels of government and law enforcement are watching carefully for voter fraud, including during early voting. Cheat at your own peril. Violators will be subject to the maximum penalties, both civil and criminal. We cannot let Andrew Gillum win in Florida. He's already filed the paperwork to turn Florida into Venezuela. It's true. Believe me, we can't let this happen. If the Democrats win in Florida, they will turn it into Venezuela without the oil. We cannot let this happen. Today, we've invited Roberto Suro to try and untangle the mystery surrounding the Latino vote. Roberto is a professor of journalism and public policy at the University of Southern California and one of the most knowledgeable and eloquent voices on Hispanics in the United States, among other things. You are that, and and much more, Roberto. How are you? Welcome. I'm well. Thank you for the introduction. (laughs) Pleasure to have you with us. So first, let's explain what we're talking about when we try to describe the Hispanic community in the United States. I think it's, it's important. So one of the biggest misunderstandings with the Hispanic community is that it's both monolithic and monothematic, and, and it is not. The community is very diverse, and in many cases it lacks a common history. For example, the Cuban-American community is certainly not the same as the Mexican-American community, and it certainly cares about much more than just immigration. So the media, and I think politicians as well, have not understood this. Why? (laughs) Why? I mean, I don't know, because people have been trying to tell the world this for a long time. And there persists this notion of that there is the Hispanic community, that there's one, that it's one thing. And it's especially true with the vote. Mm-hmm. I mean, not only are there several different major pieces of the Latino electorate, 
but the Latino, the electorate itself is very different than the population as a whole. I mean, to start with, the electorate is only U.S. citizens and only people over 18. So uh, a big piece of the population is excluded right there. You add to the fact that people are more likely to vote when they're older and when they have some money. So the young and the poor are the, typically, regardless of race in the United States, vote at very low rates. And so the electorate is not only U.S. citizens, but it's older and more uh, more middle class than the population as a whole. So it, it is very a very different animal and a very specific animal, the, the Latino electorate. And it certainly isn't monothematic either, right? There's this idea, let's just talk about immigration to, to Hispanics, and that should do it. Yeah, of course. That's more the notion, I think, among uh, in the media than it is uh, among politicians who understand this differently. And the other notion is that to appeal to the Latino vote, you should have a Latino politician. And that's certainly the case at the congressional level and below that you have very deliberate efforts to create Latino constituencies that preserve the incumbency of Latino politicians. So there's there's a lack of competition for this vote, particularly at the congressional level and below. Now, I, I, I call the, the Hispanic electorate a mystery, and I do believe that's the right word. In the last couple election cycles, anti-immigrant rhetoric has been front and center in America's political debate, it was it was the case, we, we tend to forget this, but it was the case with Mitt Romney and the idea of self-deportation, and it has obviously been more so now with uh, Donald Trump, who is an openly nativist president, he was an openly nativist candidate. So before we go into Trump and, and the midterms, give me your perspective on the trajectory of uh, Hispanic electoral engagement, or lack thereof. Historically, how have Latino voters behaved? I mean, historically, Latino voters have underperformed uh, compared to African Americans and whites, and that's become particularly true in the last several cycles, where African American participation went way up during the Obama elections, uh, and white participation went up, particularly in the Trump election. Latino participation has been very routinely steady and significantly underperforms. Maybe two-thirds of the turnout that you get from whites, for example. And as I said, some of that is due, if you kind of, you do the math and you discount for the youth of the population and you discount for the income, you basically fill part of the gap. But even after you do that, there's still a measure of underperformance that isn't explained by characteristics, but is is behavior. So to a certain extent, there's no question that, that Latinos simply do not participate in the political process in the United States at, this, at the same rate as other groups. The, the 2016 election is, is a great example of what you're describing. We should give some context, although it's so recent. In July 2015, it, it took Trump 100 seconds, 100, I counted them, 100 seconds to begin bashing Mexican immigrants, and of course he didn't stop making the project of this massive border wall one of his main selling points with the Republican base. His attack on immigrants was, uh, I think, unprecedented, at least for a front-runner in, in the modern 
in the modern era. So many people thought that Trump's bellicosity would finally wake up Latino voters. I certainly did as a Hispanic uh, journalist, as an immigrant. I heard other colleagues predict that Hispanics would prove that they alone held the key to the White House. Others spoke of a Hispanic wave, a wave that was coming that would sweep Trump's nativism aside. Now, none of those things happened. There were some notable stories of renewed engagement in places like Nevada, for example, but Latino turnout lagged. And according to exit polls, uh, we'll talk about those uh, very controversial exit polls, almost three out of every 10 Latino voters favored Trump. So how how do you make sense of, of what happened in 2016, given what you described previously? Well, so there are two things there that you have to consider separately. One is overall turnout. And the other is the partisan split. I mean, let's start with that last part. People were shocked that, uh, as you said, that 30% of Latinos voted for for Trump, and it was probably may have been a little bit higher than that, actually. But in any case, I mean, the fact of the matter has been that very consistently, maybe you know, a third, sometimes a little more, of the Latino vote has voted for conservative candidates for Republicans. The highest mark in recent years was 40% by George W. Bush. Or Bush, yeah. But, mm-hmm. Yeah, but 30% is, you know, is near the low, but uh, not the absolute low. Bob Dole in 1996, from the best we can tell from the data, uh, went even lower. So uh, there's, there is a, a core part of the Latino electorate that uh, responds to Republican candidates and sees itself as conservative. Part of that are the Cubans in Florida. But even among Mexican-Americans, there is you know, a, a part of that electorate that is very conservative. And in fact, the electorate as a whole is somewhat, the Mexican-American electorate uh, as a whole is more conservative than certainly journalists and the popular imagination would consider. So it's not surprising that Trump got 30%. And, and in current polls, uh, he's doing better than that. I mean, he seems to have improved his standing with the Latino electorate uh, as being president. And, and uh, you know, the current indications was he would do a little better than he did in 2016 if there, he was on the ballot today. Um, the other factor related to that is that people don't just vote against something. They have to vote for something. And part of this, I think, you know, ultimately we have to say the Democrats haven't offered Latinos something to vote for, uh, mm-hmm. at least not enough. That's what the data suggests. It, part of it is their behavior. Part of the, that behavior is explained by the way the political parties have approached them. Let me push back a little bit on, on, on some of that. So as, as we know, uh, this was an openly nativist candidate, a front runner. I think we hadn't seen that in, in ages uh, uh, in, in the United States. Uh, were, were we naive when we expected? I personally expected Hispanics to turn out. I didn't believe in the Hispanic wave myself, but I did expect Hispanics to turn out against what was a, a, a nativist anti-immigrant candidate. I, I did believe that this was a turning point for the Hispanic electorate, and it wasn't. Were we naive, Roberto? Yes, very naive, I'm afraid. <laughs> I have to say that. <laughs> I didn't expect it. I didn't expect there was going to be a great Latino wave. There's just nothing in the evidence to ever suggest that hasn't happened before. There's no reason to assume it would happen now, even despite the provocation of Trump. I mean, they really underperformed in 2016. I mean, they, they uh, there was no significant change in the turnout from 2012. 
I mean, you look at large parts of the electorate overall. I mean, white women. I mean, he insulted white women as directly as he insulted Latinos. I mean, there was some shift, for sure, but not as dramatic as people expected. If if there had been as large a shift among white women as people thought, Clinton would have won the election. And and they had a candidate who was speaking directly to them mm-hmm. um, and who was, you know, embodied their identity. And they still didn't turn out or switch their preferences in large measure. So part of this is a Latino phenomenon. Part of it is a larger American phenomenon. I'm going to go through a series of arguments that, I, that I've heard about why Hispanics don't turn out to vote. So one of them is they haven't received enough attention from the parties. Uh, polling firm uh, Latino Decisions just recently revealed that six out of ten Latinos say that they have not been contacted for the midterms by a campaign or a candidate. Is that the problem? Could that be one of the issues? Do parties pay enough attention to Latinos or is it just that they don't know how to talk to Latinos? No, no, it's not that. Think of who it is that is campaigning in Latino communities. For the most part, it's Latino candidates. I'm totally not surprised that six out of ten haven't been contacted because six out of ten are in congressional districts that, as a political scientist, say are overdecided. They're not contested. Mm-hmm. Uh, many uh, Latino congressional candidates run for office with nobody opposing them. And that's because they and Latino political activists have designed those districts to be packed, to be Latino districts. You look at the the Congressional Hispanic Caucus and add up all the years those people have represented their districts. Some of them have been there for 20 years. Many, Most of them, you know, five or six terms. These are fiefdoms. They're, they're people who they do not, they don't need to campaign. The districts are designed for them not to have to campaign. And those are, they are, again, remember, these are Latino politicians. Let, let me ask you about Texas, for example. There's a, I mean, a very, very peculiar uh, Hispanic electorate, but there's a, a, a highly contested Senate campaign between... Uh, uh, between a Latino and an Anglo. So I think that's worth exploring, Roberto, because... Uh, so when, when you said there's an Anglo candidate in Texas and one Latino candidate... My first reaction was to identify uh, O'Rourke as the Anglo and Cruz as the Latino, although they don't behave that way during the campaign. O'Rourke speaks fluent Spanish, has gone to the border. So this is an interesting case for us to explore, even though formally Ted Cruz, just like Marco Rubio, formally is a Latino politician. I mean, not formally. I mean, how much more Latino can you get? I mean, you're now projecting... Latinos as a political entity that are defined by their views rather than their ethnicity. So uh-huh. you're talking about Latino. He's not a Latino progressive, is what you're saying. You're not saying he's not a Latino. You're saying he doesn't behave according to your expectations of what a Latino politician should be, which is that stereotypical notion that Latino politicians should A, speak Spanish, and B, be progressive Democrats. 
but they're not. The first part, yes. The, the, the first part, yes. The second part, no. I mean, I obviously recognize that the Latino politician can be as hyper-conservative like Cruz or, or Marco Rubio. But I do think that uh, that O'Rourke has behaved, maybe in the more stereotypical way, more of a Latino-oriented politician, thinking of how to campaign in Texas. He has gone to the border. He speaks Spanish fluently. I mean, he has his outreach has been better with Latinos. Maybe I'm wrong, but I do believe that he has behaved as more of a Latino-oriented, let's put it that way, politician. Well, let's see. I mean, I, I, you know, there have been Latino Democrats who have not done particularly better than their white counterparts. Uh, let me push back a little bit on the language issue. The great majority of Latino voters are monolingual English speakers. Mm-hmm. That's true. You're right. Yeah. You're right. So what? Why? So speaking Spanish is, you don't need to speak Spanish. I mean, look, George W. Bush had mastered the the little cue, the little, the few phrases in Spanish that you speak. But he did it in a way to say, "Listen, I know you're there. You know, I can hear you. I, you know, I I I understand who you are, and I and I just give you a few phrases. Hola, you know, estoy yeah. un placer estar con ustedes." That's all he had to say. <laughs> yeah. Now, Tim Kaine, first vice presidential candidate or presidential candidate to speak Spanish fluently, he does because he went to Honduras as a missionary, but he's from Virginia. Well, it didn't do him any good. That's right. Other people say that Latinos don't vote because they don't trust the democratic process since they learned its shortcomings in the flawed electoral processes in their countries of origin. I, I read this very recently, for example, in a, in a very lucid piece in the New York Times about Nevada Latino voters. This has always struck me as a lazy argument, Roberto. What do you think? You know, it may be true of that portion of the electorate that is immigrant. Maybe. But in the Southwest uh, and California, you, you know, the bulk of the Latino electorate are people who have been here for multiple generations. I mean, interestingly, the most, I believe this is true, the most immigrant-heavy portion of the Latino electorate are Cubans. And they certainly, you know, they came here because they didn't like the political system in their country, and, they, you know, and, and Cuba was a failed democracy before the revolution. You know, I mean, it may pertain to some people, but I don't think it explains the larger phenomena. Another problem might be, and this is this is my my opinion, that the lack of real political leadership among Hispanics, especially among the Mexican American community, uh, and you, you spoke about this a little bit when you mentioned uh, uh, Cruz and, and Rubio and even Menendez. So the Cuban American community has three senators in Washington. The Mexican-American community, and we could also talk about the Central American-American community, has none. And there are many other examples. Do you think that the, the, the fact that there are uh, no, no really, truly visible, inspiring, viable, large political figures is a problem for, the, for, for that part oh, of the It's a huge problem, electorate? and it's crazy. Here we are in California with yeah. a very old, very well-established Latino electorate that has overcome discrimination. So there are people who've been in office now. We're into the second, some cases, the third generation of Latino politicians. And we're heading into a statewide election uh, with several, an open governor's seat and an open Senate seat. There's one Latino running for the Senate who's not a credible candidate. And that's it. It's really kind of remarkable that there has not 
there, uh, once again, there will not be a Latino elected to a major statewide office in California. And given the way these seats run, it could be another, you know, four, six, eight years before there's an opportunity. So, yeah, there is an extraordinary lack of leadership. You look at somebody like Villarregosa in uh, in California, two-term mayor of Los Angeles. Um, he lost Los Angeles. He lost the city. Immigrants. He saw, lost his own constituency. He turned to the mayor to of San Francisco, no less. Hmm? To the mayor of San Francisco. He lost it to the yeah. mayor of San Francisco. Yeah, <laughs> no, and to a very Anglo candidate. It, it was, I mean, he was a flawed candidate. I mean, Villarregosa. I mean, he was... He started working in big business. He became rich. He neglected his roots. He became kind of a star. And he took the Latino vote in his home constituency for granted. Yet part of this is the performance of, of politicians. And part of it is also the fact that, as I said, you have got both in terms of the state assembly, although there there are term limits, and certainly in Congress, Latino politicians who hold their seats like they are their own private fiefdoms for life. Mm-hmm. So there's a lack of competition, even among Latinos. And you, and you have incumbent protection has been one of the objectives of the way Latino candidates in office, once they have power, the way they've operated. You've had a lack of competition. You had a lack of, of a process to produce new leaders. I mean, this is also true to a certain extent in African-American communities. So it's not just Latinos. It's the way the American political system works. It, it rewards incumbents and locks in a leadership of groups and in, in communities. And so, I mean, for example, where there's not been an, the equivalent of a progressive revolt by Latinos in the Southwest in California, you don't have an insurgency. You don't have like a Tea Party phenomenon where people break ranks. And part of it is the incumbents have a very strong hold on power. And uh, I, I think that, that the midterms could be the, the, the ideal scenario for something like that happening. So let's talk about the midterms. The, yeah. the Pew Research Center just published a study on Hispanics in America that I found fascinating. So the numbers uh, are terribly sad, to be honest. 47% of those polled said that their situation has worsened in the last year. 57% of foreign-born Hispanics have serious concern about their place in America under Trump. Now, the number among Hispanics born in the U.S. is still incredibly high. Four out of ten say they are concerned about their place in the country they were born in. 38% say they have felt some sort of discrimination. The list goes on. So this should theoretically translate, I think, into a heightened sense of political participation, Roberto, for the midterms. Theoretically, yes. Um, I mean, first of all, this election is crazy. And trying to make any predictions about it is a fool's errand at this point. I mean, I think it's totally, I mean, it's crazy. We've never been in a place like this before. So, so I don't think we have any basis for trying to guess what's going to happen. But uh, I think there's a theme that we've seen, certainly in the last five or six maybe longer years, is that we don't see what the sociologists call as reactive ethnicity, where threat produces a stronger sense of group identity. That hasn't been the case with Latinos. It's mm-hmm. what you would expect, that, that if, somebody, if somebody comes after you, then as a group you feel you, your group bonds become stronger. 
Um, and as you said, theoretically, that's supposed to happen. It hasn't happened. Why? You think? I think it's for all the reasons we've been talking about. Part of it, the way it's fragmented, um, the way different people, uh, and it's also the nature of the fact that there isn't a Latino identity. The extent that there is some kind of shared identity in some groups, it doesn't appear to be something that motivates people politically. They may feel anxious about it, but that doesn't mean they're going to vote about it. The solution to it should come, to this apathy, should come from political parties. Uh, when a figure arises and inspires everyone, like the messianic approach, is that the solution? Does the media, not only Hispanic language media, but English language media increasingly, since Hispanics have turned to it increasingly, is that the, 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 the solution to this apathy, a combination of all those? Yeah, I mean, all of the above and more. When you think about when was the last time there was a Latino Democrat with a, a national following, or even the potential for a national following, I don't know, how far back do we go? Do we go all the way back to Henry Cisneros? I don't know. You know I mean, but certainly right now... Some people would have said Bill Richardson, maybe. Uh, yeah, he went, he went nowhere. Yeah. I mean, Bill Richardson couldn't even, you know, carry his own state in 2004. Yeah, I mean, they've got, you know, Joaquin Castro, I mean, he's been, I mean, what yeah. is his track record? I mean, where, where does Joaquin that come Castro. from? I mean, what does he win? He hasn't ever won a significant election. And people think of him as a presidential candidate. I mean, he's totally unproven. Nice guy, but I, you know, <laughs> I'm, so where... What, 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 how's this going to produce? I mean, where, where, how do we know that he's got any potential for to play in the big leagues? I mean, that's, that's the situation. Uh, so let me ask you about this. What, what happens, Roberto, if turnout among Hispanics remains low? Does the Hispanic electorate run the risk of becoming even less relevant due to its uh, stubborn uh, apathy? Yeah, I'll leave it at that. I mean, it'll remain sleeping, but not a giant. What you could hope for is that the political class would wake up and start thinking seriously about how to approach this electorate, and that the media would stop making these assumptions about it. I mean, the journalists would stop making assumptions about the Latino electorate. And it'll also be very interesting to see whether there is a difference in turnout in different places. So in Florida, there are big contested statewide races. In California, there really are not. There should be a differential in the, output, in the turnout there. I mean, look, the extent to which Latinos have a demand on the national political agenda um, is, is quite much more modest than the proponents of the Latino vote would have it. So as you well know, friends of ours at Latino Decisions, Jorge Ramos, many others have been saying, you know, there's no White House without us, um, that the road to power lies through the Latino vote. Wasn't true then, isn't true now, and regardless of the turnout, will not be true next Wednesday. It's just not true. There's structural reasons. I mean, first you've got turnout. As I said, part of it is a youth vote. Part of it is, is income. You look at the youth vote. This is where the big new numbers of Latino voters are coming. This, it's U.S. citizens turning 18, many of them the children of immigrants. One thing that we know about American politics is, with the exception of the Obama elections, 
young people tend not to vote very much. That's right. Um, That's the right. effective age of becoming a participant in this democracy in the United States is about 30. People start voting when they get married and have children and start settling down. I mean, that's a, a broad pattern. Part of it is you have a large part of the Latino electorate in places where, as I said, there's no contest. You know, at a presidential level, think of this. Two-thirds of Latino voters live in New York, Texas, or California. Those are three states that have not been contested in a presidential election for more than a decade easily, maybe even longer than that. So um, there's no contest. Presidential candidates only come to California to raise money. They don't go to the public. New York, Texas, the same thing. They're not, they're not contested. So there's, there are reasons why this, the turnout is so low, and those reasons aren't about to change. I want to ask you this question to, so we can wrap up our fascinating conversation. So uh, one of the big questions is, do Republicans have a chance with the Latino electorate? Before Trump, I would have said absolutely yes. And, and actually, after Mitt Romney, there were a couple of uh, very interesting initiatives, including the Libre Initiative that uh, approached Latinos through conservative values and, and a grassroots effort. But then came Trump. So let me put you in a very uncomfortable and difficult situation. Imagine <laughs> you are a Republican advisor. Come 2020, how would you approach the Hispanic electorate? I mean, given the circumstances, I suppose what I would say is that if, you can, if you're uh, a Republican presidential candidate and you can count on getting 30 to 35 percent of the Latino vote nationally, that's all you need. Is what I would say. I mean, there was, you know, the old scenario before George W. Bush's scenario, the Karl Rove scenarios, that if you can get above 40, you can then you can start turning California purple, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, you can do you can create the permanent Republican majority was based on the idea of getting over 40 percent of Latino electorate consistently and pushing it up into the mid 40s. So you're, you're, you know, you put that aside. At 30 to 35 percent, you can neutralize how much damage Latinos can do to a Republican candidate. So getting 30 to 35 percent of the Latino vote is just counting on getting the low end of what's been the performance for Republican candidates in the last 20 years. And that you can do. I mean, that, that a Republican presidential candidate even today can get something in that order. Trump uh, you know, in 2020, I mean, I don't think it's absurd to think he could get 30%. Well, we'll see. We'll see uh, next week with the midterms, and then we'll get the big answers in 2020. And I hope that you come back to Trumpcast, Roberto, uh, to talk about uh, this and other things. Thank you so much. My pleasure. That's the show for today. What did you think? If you if you loved it, maybe you would consider joining Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. It helps every one of us keep the show going and you get so much more great podcasts and writing without ads. If you want to do that, just visit slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus. Our show today was produced by AC Valdez. John D. Domenico is our great voice of Donald Trump. And I'm Leon Krause from Los Angeles, California. Thanks again for listening to our Trumpcast. <laughs>